it's Lisa Cordoff. Welcome to the podcast where you can expect inspiring, raw, energizing, and transformative conversations with people on the path of personal evolution. I'm here to really live my life. And if you are too, these conversations are just for you. I'm really glad you're here. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to part two of the story so far. If you listened to part one and you are here for part two, thank you for witnessing my story. I promise that once all of this is out, then we're going to be diving a bit deeper into some of the the big ticket issues, stories, lessons from this time. Uh, that will be happening in the next few episodes, but it's really important that this the story gets told and there will be a place for people to come and hear it if it at all interests you. I uh, know the power of hearing other people's stories when I was going through hard times and how it helped me feel less alone from a very, very, like during a very lonely time. So I hope that this is of service to the people who need to hear it and anyone really. Ah, we can do really hard things, as the amazing Glennon Doyle says, and I guess this is my story of hard things. So I left you uh, in 2019 when Nick had entered a a six-month program, a rehab program, and, and I was thrust into solo parenting the kids. So I had actually been building up a muscle for this. He was in and out uh, over a few years period um, in into different rehab rehab situations, but it was only ever for sort of, I think the longest was a five weeks stint, uh, whereas this was, you know, this was the new way it was going to be. And And there are a few things about that time at that particular time when I knew the marriage was over, when I felt a sense of relief that that other people were taking care of him, uh, but also that I had three little children whose lives had changed massively as well. On a personal level, I was absolutely and completely spent. I was, I hadn't, I had just nothing left in my tank. And coupled with that, I found it very hard to eat. I completely lost my appetite. Uh, I was, I was existing on a diet of a coffee a day, an apple, and kettle salted chips. That was it. I I literally, the grief around losing my marriage, losing, wrong word, the grief around, I guess, this evolution of our relationship. Like I, I love you and I let you go. I love you and this doesn't work anymore. I love you and it's time for me to heal. I love you and you need to own this more than anybody else. And I'm just praying to whatever forces that that's something that you choose to do. 
It was devastating. I would say there was a there was huge grief a few months later when he passed away. But this grief was so huge. Anyone who's gone through a a separation from the person who they thought, like, I mean, I, we had three kids together. We had dreams. We were building a life together. It wasn't meant to be anybody else. He was it for me and I was going to do anything I could to make that happen. And then that stopped and you have to completely form a new identity and for me it had come on the back of just a lot of uh, traumatic times you know I mean he never ever he was never abusive or violent or anything like that he just he just was never like that he was loving and kind he was just he was really in the grip of of addiction um but yeah, there was never any harm, uh, meaningful harm done, but it was it was it was traumatic to live through that period of life. So by the time it came to me, then having to navigate the kids through this change and myself keep the business running, and and just try to survive. Uh, I mean, there was literally nothing in the tank. So I knew I had worked on myself long enough to know that I absolutely couldn't even expect myself to be able to do all the things. And I'm so glad I had that wake-up call uh, that I mentioned in in part one of the story where my mentor had really encouraged me to take responsibility for my own health. And in doing this, I realised I was going to need to ask for help, which had traditionally has been a super uncomfortable thing for me to do. I mean, if you only saw the text messages of me trying to ask my parents to take the kids so I can have a break, it's like I apologize 17 times before I even actually just ask the question. It must be very funny to them to um, have witnessed me leaning into asking for and being able to receive support over the years. Um. But I knew that I wasn't going to be able to maintain the house by myself and do all the things. So I set about hiring a cleaner, you know, just on very practical levels. I I helped myself not do all the things. Uh, and carpooling became a big part of <laughs> life, you know, um, having people help me do things with, with the children. Um, I realized that I was spending a lot of time. I mean, my youngest was at kindergarten, so she was doing, I think it was 9.30 till 3, three days a week. So they were my working hours. And then I had her the other two days. And I was just stressing out the day before these cleaners came. I wasn't able to hang out with her because I was running around tidying up, you know, doing the clean for the cleaners. And and I realized I didn't have to do all these things. And so I hired an amazing housekeeper to come in for three hours and she just tidies and she's like an angel in my life. She started to rearrange furniture and she would find little things at op shops and bring them into the home. I mean, she could see this was a broken woman uh, in front of her and she's still with me now and so are the cleaners and I'm so grateful to them. 
Uh, and I knew that I couldn't exist on the food that I was eating, that it wasn't good for me. And even although I wasn't hungry, I needed to get nutrients in. So I would do these, I'd, I'd buy a whole stack of cold pressed juices and just sip on, on juice to get some nutrients in. I, I mean, I lost a lot of weight in that time and I knew it wasn't good, but I also just knew that it would pass. I, I didn't get too attached to it. I just tried to support my uh, my nervous system, which was completely shot. My adrenals were completely shot. It was all, it was all just, I mean, yeah, to say I had nothing left in the tank. Yeah. And then there were little things like I really hated being in the house on my own. I really got nervous. I used to hate when Nick, for a few years, uh, he would have to go away for weeks um, or for a week, you know, when the, the kids were really, really little. Um, he had a few years um, working for an engineering company and have to go to mines. And I'd sleep with the lights on, a really nervous at nighttime person. And suddenly <laughs> I had to be a big girl. You know, suddenly I was responsible for all the things, uh, putting out bins was never my job and and I had to do that and I had to do the reading with the kids and I had to do pickups and drop-offs and I had to – and it was just like, whoa, I, I'm stepping into a whole new role here and – and my identity was so connected to being Nick's wife and, uh, you know, I will be talking more about codependence in a future episode. But, you know, my whole identity was around being responsible for him, trying to fix him, thinking about what he needed every single day. That there was also this weird freedom. There was a lightness there was a big time release and I realized how tightly wound I had been for, for years, how I'd walked on eggshells for years, how I'd placed someone else's needs above my own for years. And suddenly the future seemed daunting and exciting in equal measure which is strange to say because it was also a ridiculous amount of grief I had to process. I mean, ridiculous. I cried all the time. But I had to sort of keep going and, you know, during that sort of early time, there was also this man who came into my life, a neighbour, who knew I was not in a good way. Uh, he'd helped me out with a little handymanning project around the house. He was doing some local handymanning stuff and uh, sat in my back garden one day on a particularly bad day and I shared my story with him. I just started talking and he just held this space for me to tell me my story. I'd never, 
I really did not know this person. I don't know why I was doing it. I felt really, really safe with him. And I felt heard and it was beautiful. It was really beautiful now that I really think back to that moment. And and then so suddenly little Bertram Muesli was being dropped on my doorstep, you know, chicken, tagines, stews, things would just start sort of appearing and he was trying to feed me <laughs> and the kids and uh, has two kids of his own that who are the same age as my older two. So would start to offer to take my kids out uh, on little weekend adventures that he was doing with his boys and just felt like he was like some sort of angel in my life. I feel like I was supported by lots of angels at this time actually. And uh, and so we had this beautiful friendship. We were doing a lot of honest sharing. He he had been processing a lot of stuff, doing a lot of his own inner work and own healing um, since his uh, since a relationship had ended a few years before, and almost certainly was not looking for a replacement or a relationship of any kind. But there was also a ridiculous amount of chemistry between us. And after a while, I ended up just sort of allowing myself to explore pleasure, to receive, like it was so uncomfortable to even just receive the food that this man was giving me. He could obviously see it wasn't the time for a relationship or anything like that, but we we absolutely, we had a really, really strong connection and amazing conversation and chemistry that I think we both just sort of ended up giving into. And, uh, and it's been... Uh, and I, I had no attachment. I remember saying, if this is what gets me through this particular time, I'll take it. <laughs> and anyway, I will share sort of more of that story. We are we are together now. Uh, there was a period where we weren't. Um, <laughs> it's when Lisa discovered dating apps and all the fun things. Woof. Anyway, uh, that's an, that's another story that's probably not going to be shared at this stage, but um, I'm so pleased that I allowed myself to experience him at that particular stage, even although it made no logical sense whatsoever to be doing that. Anyway, throughout this time, and people often ask me about the kids, I mean, I was deep in in all the stuff. Um, there was so much I was realising about how I had shown up in relationship with Nick. Um, and the kids weren't great. They knew, they saw they saw Nick, they had access to him, sort of took them out for dinner once a week and, and bits and pieces like that after a certain amount of time and I was always bringing him, bring, well, I got support to help me um, take the kids to him in the beginning and then I took over doing that. Um, 
because it was always so important to maintain that relationship with the kids and stuff. But they were experiencing a very big change in their lives, this man who they just adore. I wasn't there anymore. I was not okay. And so things started to happen, big time separation anxiety, uh, lots of trouble sleeping. There was a lot. The kids weren't weren't great. Um, my son moved back into the room with the girls for a while. He'd been in his own room for a while and and yeah, it was it was a really hard time, I've got to say. And there were lots of things that I did, and I often get asked this, um, especially around helping the kids cope with the grief of his death. Strangely, him being out of our house and not a part of our daily lives. By the time he passed away, a lot of work had been done with them to to process a type of loss. Now, nothing compares to the death of a parent. Um, so I'm not going to, but assume, like say that that they dealt with it or were okay when he died because they certainly weren't. But we did a lot of I did a lot of energy work with them. It's really hard to sometimes know because kids can't communicate themselves what's wrong. Uh, but kinesiology, a chiropractic, body talk, psychologists, a lot of family support, special people who they could talk to and open up to, and just so much physical touch, like being physically available to them and emotionally available for them to process, for them to learn that there are no such thing as bad feelings, for them to be able to express without judgment uh, and and without me also necessarily getting in the weeds with them, you know, just being able to be a, a support, a witness and hold them, hold a space for them uh, to process whatever it was that they were needing to go through. But, you know, I tried, there's been so many different methodologies, so many different, I mean, meditating or a soma, all sorts of things that we've incorporated into our lives so that their nervous systems can be brought under control, like just brought back to base. And I realized I was a key, key part in this, that I got to set the tone for the house. I got this, I got to set the tone for the pace of our lives. And I guess I could have done that at any time and there were lots of things I've been doing over the years and if you have listened to any of my uh, workshops or, or teachings, that that chaos that I talk about, the overwhelm that I was living in a lot of the time, I mean there was a part of it that was circumstantial, certainly living amongst uh, relapse and sobriety that roller coaster brought its own level, but I was also operating as a pretty chaotic being for a long time. So I was really glad that I'd put so much into practice, that I'd learned so much about myself and how to choose a new way of being in order to 
in order to completely shift my energy. I mean, the mood shift training, if you haven't done that, go and do that straight away. They are basically the two pillars of energy and responsibility that that really I was drawing on them every single day. I was doing gentle movements. I had my yoga mat out every night. So in the morning I'd wake up, I'd do some stretching and a self-hypnosis. I would I would stand, I would get out of my bed and I would put my feet on the ground and I would say thank you three times. I was doing everything I could to ground myself, nurture myself, support myself because I had an immediate and very obvious effect on the children. And I wasn't doing it for the children. I was doing it for all of us. And this is where really a lot of that stuff around stories comes in. I knew that I could tell myself whatever story I wanted about what this next stage of my life had to mean. Was it going to mean single motherhood, overwhelm, chaos, angry, you know, uh, whatever? Or could I craft something that actually really worked for us? And I used all my tools. And I am so proud of how, as a crew, the kids and I have navigated this last few years. But it didn't, I had to take the lead in that. I was the leader of the pack. And so amongst all my grief, all the crying, all the communicating to them that mummy's not okay today, I'm not feeling good today, this is a time when I'm going to need to cry, I'm going to go and have a bath because I need to support my body and my body loves being in the water. You know, we got to create language around feelings and processing of feelings and this is why, you know, we don't realize how powerful we are. We don't realize how our state, it is, I mean, we set the tone and it's within our control. I, it was almost like I was testing myself. What about in this time? In this time, does it work? In this time, can I choose to shift my frequency? In this time, what does feeling my feelings actually look like? And I tell you, it felt like a deep, dark pit. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to manage myself, but I knew that it was absolutely a part of the process. And so we we moved through and and we created a new version of our rhythm. But then Nick left the the six-month program and he was already showing signs of instability. I mean, they say that relapse occurs way before the first drink. But um, the night that he left that program, my youngest daughter FaceTimed him because she wanted to say hi to Daddy and I was with her and I could tell he was drinking and I can't even tell you how just <laughs> devastating that was for him. I, I was just, oh, it just, when I say addiction, it just does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. 
And the thing is he had his ticket to India booked. Uh, he had a ticket to the Gold Coast book. He flew up to the Gold Coast. Oh, no, it was the Sunshine Coast. And, uh, and he, was, he, was in, he was in relapse. And n- none of us could, could quite believe it. You know, I wish I could talk to him about that particular phase because oh, our hearts were just broken. And this was the chance, you know, he'd been talking to the kids about moving into an apartment and they were so excited about that and then suddenly everything was off the table and he was going to India and... I remember sitting down with his brother at the table and saying, we have to be prepared for him not to come home. One of the main causes of death for addicts is accidental death, taking themselves so far to the edge and not not knowing or doing silly things like walking in front of a car you know it's just so often accidental and um we had our last dinner with him the kids and I the night before he left and he wasn't in a good way his family had been with him throughout the day to help him stay sober to see the kids that night I mean as I'm talking this It's still shocking to me. And uh, I can remember hugging him. I said to him, I hope that India gives you what you need. And I smelt him, this man who I loved. And I saw him hug our children and we walked away and the kids were confused because he wasn't, he was shaking so much. And and I didn't take a photo that night of them all together and I wish I had because a few weeks later his brother knocked on my door at night and they'd been told that he had died and while I was fearful that that was going to be the outcome of his trip while I thought I was prepared for something bad to happen nothing nothing would have prepared me for that nothing could have prepared me for having to tell my children that their dad had died. I mean, to anyone else who has been in this position. It was just, it was out of control. It felt completely, I mean, the kids were five, seven and eight. And 
the girls were at my sister's house because I was trying to make time for one-on-one time with the kids. They were really desperate for it. So this was my weekend with my boy. So we'd had a fabulous day and he was in bed and he didn't wake up during the night. And uh, the next morning I asked him to come to my bed and that is the worst conversation I've ever had in my life. And so began my (laughs) absolute desperation for some sort of rule book here. How am I meant to tell my children? How am I meant to do this by myself? This was not the plan. He was meant to get well. I had, he was meant to get sober and bring all of his amazing gifts to the, those children for the rest of their lives. He had so many things to share with the world, his music, his paintings, his writing, and it, and it was gone. And, and that grief, I mean, yeah, it was just shocking. It was just like, what, how has this happened to this man? How did this happen, you know? And because it happened in India, then there was expatriation, autopsy over there, autopsy here. I mean, it was a total mess. And his brother really did so much. He did it all. And I just had to work out how to get the kids through this phase. Four days after we were told of his passing, we were due on a flight to Bali. The kids and I were going there for my 40th birthday. It was their first overseas trip. (sighs) And I didn't know what to do. Do I keep them? Do they need their people, my parents, their cousins, Nick's family? What do I do? And I decided to take them. And it was the first lesson amongst all of this that I learned, which was, Oh, you are so much more capable than you give yourself credit for, Lisa, to get packed up and get kids on an overseas flight and get yourself to a whole other country. I mean, I can't remember much of that time, but we did it. And the first lesson and then the next lesson was that in this, it was actually an amazing holiday because I allowed space for their grief for mine and space for joy, laughter, playing, allowing them to be kids on holidays in Bali, going to water bomb and going down water slides. And this awful, horrible thing had happened and we were laughing. We were also crying. We were slow. We were together. We were so together and it was actually perfect. There was no funeral, not for, oh, I don't even know how long it took for the funeral to happen. Five weeks, six weeks, I don't know, even know how long. And, uh, and you know, once again I was like, man, could someone just, if someone's got 
a rule book. I'll just just give me the steps. How do I get up in the morning and get my kids to the funeral of their dad? And I'm I'm sharing this, and and it's embarrassing to be crying on my podcast. Because so much processing has been done of this, but I'm sharing it so if ever you feel yourself, and I'm sure that there's loads of you who've been in situations just like this, this depth of feeling, this absolute rug pulled out from under you. I mean, some people, you know, the lockdowns and the uncertainty, I'm like, oh man, I I guess I've built some muscles around this. It sucks, but it's certainly not the worst thing in the world, you know. And I think for a lot of people who've experienced hard things or navigated times where they were like on their knees, on their knees, I was I was just unable to figure out how to do much and I did it. How does that happen? Humans are freaking amazing. And so I just I just want you to know that when the rubber hits the road, you're so capable even when you don't feel like you are and that there are people around you who will help you through. Those people are magic. Those people are your earth angels, you know. I couldn't have done it without people. And so then there's this other journey that I had to embark on, which was then knowing that it wasn't going to be a co-parenting situation, that I was a solo parent, that that these little humans Now it was the four of us, you know, and still amongst all this, I'm showing up to work. (laughs) I definitely took some time off around his death and then I kind of felt really like burning with desire to serve. I absolutely used work as a distraction, like thinking about other people how what I was going through, the tools I was collecting could possibly help them, how if they were helping me through this stage of my life, through this level of hardship, what they might do for for those, for all of the other times. You know, literally everything I teach, I put into practice in my life and these things have helped me navigate the really hard stuff. Standing in my own power these days, which is not about being strong. It's about having to allow myself to actually feel and survive that. Allowing myself to receive from other people, be supported instead of constantly being the supporter. I mean, that's, there's power in that. And I wasn't practiced at it and I'm still having to practice all the time. I've had to surrender. I'm living a life that I could never have imagined. 
And I've also been able to see the gifts. When someone is living such a tortured life like Nick was, I mean, it really was not, it was really, really hard. Life, his life was really hard. It was, I have a relationship with him now. And I know I am supported by him because it gets proven to me in so many different ways that I'm so grateful for. And there's an acceptance that I have around death. I believe, my personal belief, is that we are energy beings and we occupy a a human body for a particular lifetime and we learn and we live and we evolve and and we we can drop the body but we're still energy we still exist and i've asked for proof of that i have been told you know he has come through <laughs> i mean i've had conversations with him that you literally couldn't make it up like i couldn't make i couldn't make it up I got answers about his his death when there really were none. And I feel a peacefulness for him, for him. I've got this even when I feel like I don't. I will give our children as much as I can in this lifetime. And for some reason, this was their particular journey. It so sucks. Oh, Father's Days. One of those is coming up soon. Ugh. They will grow up. They will have access to their dad through his music. He was a songwriter, so many songs, and his artwork, so many paintings. And there's journals upon journals that they will read one day and discover about their dad. And there's so many people who loved him. And it sucks, you know, really sucks. They miss him. They miss having a dad. Because no one will ever replace him. No one could. No one should. But they have a village of people around them. The people who have shown up for my children throughout this time, I'm indebted to for life. They will be okay because of them. And and I hold a vision for all of us. You know, they're such amazing kids. And I think that's the thing that upsets me most often is I just have to believe he's witnessing them. But I wish the other person who created them and loved them like I did was here 
even although I can be peaceful about this being his journey, our journey, you know, I moved to acceptance pretty quickly, which shocked the people around me. But because I I loved him, I I knew he was peaceful. I knew he would also never leave us and he hasn't. I moved to acceptance, but it still sucks, you know? And my friend Lisa Carpenter always says, you don't have to like something to accept it. And I really know this to be true, that wishing things were another way is a serious waste of energy. So, yeah, that's the story. <laughs> you know, since then, it's been almost it's been almost two years since he passed away that I am recording this. And COVID, I mean, I was pretty cross at him for leaving me with three kids to parent and homeschool and work and all the things during lockdowns in Melbourne. Oh, I had a yell or two at him for sure. But I also thank him. Our journey together has helped me immensely through this time because all of the lessons that I learned, all the things I had to put in place to support myself through uncertainty came into play. And I've been able to share with other people his belief in me all those years ago to start a little blog, to sell a little course called Small Steps to Whole Foods, his cheerleading me along the way. That led to me creating a business that supports our family. I mean, I don't know where I'd be without that. I don't know where I'd be without you listening to this, staying you know, connected to me, learning, trusting me and, you know, jumping into workshops and trainings. That not only allows me to employ people to help me run this ship, get the message out to, to more people, but it's, it's literally given me a reason to keep going through really hard times so and I can keep a roof over our head (laughs) you're every time you buy a program or anything it might have been a little ebook over the years that has a direct impact I'm grateful and I'm sharing my story because I'm not afraid of you seeing me, hearing this. I'm at a stage of my life where I need to lead myself through the next evolution and sharing this story, being able to point people to a certain direction when they're like, who is this Lisa Kordoff? Well... This is the shit that was going down for a few years. This is how I have been building myself back up. (laughs) 
this is me. And in the next few episodes, I'm going to explore some of the the deeper issues that really came to light, you know, throughout this, things that I've specifically had to work on, realizations that I've had about myself and the ways of being that I operated in, that I am shifting. And a lot of these themes are what I help people move through in Ready for Change. A level of peace in my life after all that, like it's possible for me, oh, my gosh, it's possible for everyone. And and I, I'm sharing this too so I think people can have an idea of what's going on in people's lives or see a, you know, bloody happy put-together person on social media and assume all sorts of things, a life of rainbows and unicorns perhaps. But in fact, there was a lot going on all the time and I look for transparency. I look for honesty amongst women who I'm going to give my attention to and so I just figure you deserve that too. I deserve to tell the story in an honest way. And as I said, I mean, this is not, this is the highlights. This is, there's so much more that can be said, which I'm sure you're aware of. You're a smart woman. But it's been on my heart to do this for a while and now felt like the right time. I'm really appreciative if you've listened to this because uh, I'm sure that wasn't easy going. God, what did I just say? Now I'll have one of those moments of wanting to run and hide. But I hope you got something out of it. <laughs> Not too sure what that would be. We'll do a lot more of the delving into things in the next few episodes. So I'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to that episode. I definitely hope you enjoyed it. Now, I wanted to let you know that we have a bunch of free stuff available for you at the website. You can go to lisacorduff.com and check out my free stuff section and download something juicy to help you with your transformation. You can also go to our programs page where I have made available some never sold before workshops and a bunch of short courses to help you with things like creating extra time in your week, moving through your overwhelm, getting on top of your tech habits and getting unstuck. I'm here to help and you've got brand new ways for me to do that beyond this podcast. So go to lisacorduff.com and check it out. Hey, if you're enjoying the conversation, then it would mean the world to me if you head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. It really makes a difference and it's my intention to get as many of us involved in real conversations that really change the game as possible. Thanks so much for your help and I'll see you in the next episode. 